0: We were relentless in refusing to stop existing. Had it been more fruitful times, we would have raised money sooner, not known where to put it, and probably gone out of business.
1: From Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, head of Lift Labs, and today's guest is Bob Moore. Bob is co-founder and CEO of CrossBeam, a data platform that helps companies discover which customers and leads they have in common. Before CrossBeam, Bob co-founded and sold two other successful companies. And his writing about technology, startups, and data has appeared in the New York Times, Forbes, TechCrunch, VentureBeat, and numerous other publications. In today's episode, Bob and I chat about how his first company, RJ Metrics, was founded just as the economy collapsed in 2008. He'll share the lessons he learned from building a company during a crisis and how those learnings gave him the tools he used later during times of prosperity to beat the competition. And Bob will compare those experiences to what he sees in the COVID-19 crisis to help you and your business adapt to these times of uncertainty. All of that and more with Bob Moore, now on Ideas Elevated. I'm going to let Bob kick it off and tell us what Crossbeam is all about.
0: Thanks, Danielle. It's great to be chatting with you. Crossbeam really aims to solve this classic problem that businesses run into when they're partnering with other companies, which you could almost describe as like a data standoff. So if you imagine that you want to answer really simple questions like, how many customers do we have in common and who are they? Or are my sales reps currently selling to any of the same companies that your sales reps are selling to? It's actually really hard to answer that question because it requires one side or the other to be able to draw the Venn diagram between their data and their partner's data. And you can't do that unless your partner's giving you all their data and uh, lo and behold, especially in modern days right now, nobody wants to give all their data to anybody. So very often you see partnerships operating in an environment with no data. And that's a, in stark contrast to what sales and marketing and customer success are able to do in terms of running data-driven businesses. So Crossbeam solves that problem. We're like an escrow service for data that sits in between companies that are collaborating with each other and allows them to combine their data, compare it apples to apples to find out where there's overlaps or when special conditions are met, and become aware of those opportunities to collaborate while keeping every single other data point private and secure uh, within their own area. So really, we're hoping to bring on a next generation of technology and data-enabled workflows inside the partnership space.
1: That's great. Before this, you co-founded RJ Metrics, which was acquired by Magento, and Stitch, which was acquired by Talend. You've had three very successful companies. You're based in Philadelphia, where we are also headquartered. Talk about RJ Metrics and Stitch for a minute and the timing of those companies. And I think as we're looking at where we are now with covid What's the thread that you have seen among all of these companies that you've started and and successfully launched and in some cases uh, sold? So
0: RJ Metrics, my co-founder there, Jake Stein and I, we quit our jobs to start that company in the middle of September 2008. And in the days that follows, Lehman Brothers collapsed and a bunch of other you know, economic calamities ensued. And we basically found ourselves unemployed, wanting to start an extremely high-risk venture. We were in New York City at the time, so in one of the most expensive real estate markets in the world, in the midst of a financial collapse and an economic recession. So from day one at that company, which happened to be my first company, the mentality around developing for a crunch time, an economic period where expansion was not the default It was just kind of the our mo. It was it was the only reality that we knew, and we spent from two thousand eight, two thousand nine, all the way through twenty eleven. We were fully bootstrapped at RJ Metrics, so we got to a million bucks in revenue and a dozen team members and a couple hundred clients, all without any outside capital investment in that time period. And then by twenty twelve, we had kind of proven out enough about. You know what we wanted to do there, which, by the way, we were an analytics company, so we helped uh, e-commerce businesses and SaaS businesses analyze their data uh, and figure out how to use it to get better customers. But you know that market really started to come alive right around the same time that the venture capital markets woke back up again in 2012, and then between 2012 and 2014, we raised about 25 million dollars from various Silicon Valley VCs. And then in 2016, we, we sold the company to Magento, as you mentioned. So what was interesting about RJ Metrics is just like it was this kind of feast or famine thing where we lived through probably the, the prior to coronavirus, the harshest economic period in the last 15 years or so in the U.S. And then we also participated kind of in in an upswing in the market, and we benefited from that in terms of access to capital and, and ultimately driving an exit. Stitch was was almost like that second half of RJ Metrics, but on steroids. We started out with a much more clear product and value proposition and path to market. Our team had eight years more experience because it was all the people from RJ, and we actually knew what we were doing this time. And the economy was, was doing great, and the market was expanding rapidly. So in two years uh, from 2016 to 2018 at stitch we basically did what you know took us uh, the better part of six or seven years at RJ Metrics, which is built a really solid product and customer base that was worth a lot to a lot of people and we found an acquirer that was willing to, to pay a nice premium for it so that was a, a really accelerated version of what had happened before
1: and now with you know using what you knew or know from RJ Metrics and the deep you know heart of the financial crisis What are you doing right now that listeners should be aware of, you know, in terms of running a business during really tough times? Some things
0: about running a startup during tough times are exactly the same as running a startup during good times, which is especially when you're at the very, very early stages. At the end of the day, no matter how good the economy is, you cannot fake product market fit. You can't fake having a large total addressable market. You can't fake having built a product that actually in addition to fitting in with market demand actually works and delivers what it says it's going to deliver in a way that people love it and they want more of it over time. And all of those things, the process for identifying it is not something that is always necessarily dependent on having tens of millions of dollars in the bank. It's dependent upon a very, very disciplined process of customer discovery understanding the exact personas of users you're going to sell to getting in front of those people and getting their feedback and listening and you know really collectively and open-mindedly iterating but all under the scope of a vision that is crystallizing more over time rather than broadening more over time and really helping you decide not just what you're going to do but what you're not going to do you know in these times of constraint in some ways You know, people talk about how such amazing companies get founded in these periods where there's economic contraction. And I think part of the reason is that if you've got an unlimited amount of capital, people try to do an unlimited amount of things in parallel at the same time because you're not capital constrained. So you just try to use that huge amount of capital to move as fast as you can. And you don't mind the idea that you might waste some money along the way. The problem is you're not just wasting money, you're wasting time. And there's an opportunity cost of that time. It's really real. You know, when companies are leaner and times are leaner, you really have to ask yourself the question, what's the most important incremental thing I can do with my limited time, with my limited dollars, with my limited team? And that very often leads to products and companies that have a more tightly scoped vision, a a much more specific and well-crafted view of what they're trying to build and how they're trying to do it, and much more pointed feedback about a much more specific set of things. And what that means is, yeah, you're doing less. So maybe if you're if you're really just trying to you know cover your eyes and throw darts at the dartboard and hope one hits, yeah, your your strategy is probably going to be worse off uh, because you're you're going to have less darts to throw and you're going to hit more trouble. And that makes for harder times because a lot of startups is just throwing darts blindly. No matter how good you think you are, there's a lot of stuff where you need to kind of get that data. But if you're right and you are focused, you find yourself in an environment where you have some product market fit and you have built something that people want to use. And suddenly you go out to try and compete for talent. You try to compete for market share. You try to compete for innovation and it's a ghost town. And you're the only player in town because there's not 50 other startups that are backed by venture firms. There's not people that were throwing darts blindly and happened to hit in your circle. It's really just you and maybe a small, small group of other people trying to trying to buy for that prize. I think part of the reason R.J. Metrics made it because we did not have a great vision or a well-crystallized one. We just picked a really, really big space and we were relentless in refusing to stop existing. We're not going away. We're gonna to continue to exist. We're gonna learn less and learn less and iterate. And we landed on something. And you know, I think had it been more fruitful times, we would have raised money sooner, not known where to put it and probably gone out of business. There's some silver lining there if you've got the ability to survive on kind of a bare bones process and really, really focus focus your talents on just the stuff that matters.
1: Yeah, that's Oh, great advice. And also maybe the the, the piece about being a must-have right now versus a nice-to-have. How did you prove that you were a must-have for your customers, not just a nice-to-have during financial crisis?
0: Yeah, there's a, there's always this metaphor of like, are you a vitamin or a painkiller, right? Uh, and there's kind of pros and cons of, of being each, but in, a, in an environment like this one, you know, if people are tightening their budgets. They probably stop taking their vitamins and they they continue buying their painkillers. It tracks pretty nicely to that like nice to have versus have to have metaphor, and you kind of think about it from a standpoint of customer empathy, like put yourself in the shoes of your customer and imagine you've got a tough decision in front of you. You you want to buy all these products. You want to experiment in all these ways, but they're going through the same exact thing I just described that you might be going through, which is I need to focus uh, my talents. I need to focus my energy. I need to do more with less. And that means what are the things that if I don't have them or I can't accomplish these things, I'm not going to be able to do these core fundamental pieces of what my job requires. So Things that tend to stick around in these tough environments are like core underlying platforms, Uh, like very few people are going to throw away their CRM system during this time period, like because on the other side of it all coming out, you're going to need all that data. And in the meantime, while you're trying to figure it out, that's the foundation on on which you ask questions and get answers to those questions. I think a really big thing that's actually relevant to the Crossbeam universe that can kind of be a bit of a test is and also, uh, frankly, like a, a defense posture for a lot of companies is look at the other tools that you integrate with as a product, this is particularly for you know B2B software products, which is my space and say, you know, yes, I have an integration into Slack and I've got an integration into Salesforce, et cetera. So what happens if you rip out my product? Does Slack become less valuable? Does Salesforce become less valuable? Does something stop working? One of the amazing things about Stitch was that we moved data for people. We were data pipelines. So if you ripped out Stitch, it's not just that Stitch stopped working. It's that your you know your business intelligence data warehouse stopped updating and that means that your analytics tool stopped working and that means that, that the decision engine that was based on those analytics stopped being powered. So like Stitch might have seemed like this little tiny you know piece of middleware but if you took it out everything broke. And I think one thing that is really an interesting thing to apply to to any product is if this goes away, what breaks? Not just what we give you directly but what we indirectly power. And as tech products become more and more interconnected and the API economy gets more and more mature, I think what we'll see is that actually being the thing that makes the difference between you being a vitamin or a painkiller, or, or potentially a little bit of both. And I'd encourage any company to kind of draw that map and fit that into their vision, that, that interdependency with other key products, if you're not a key product yourself.
1: That's great. Great advice. So a couple of personal things I know about you. You are really great at comedy. In particular, improv. Thank you very much. You're yes, you're really talented. You I'm also... terrified about where this list is going. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's all good. I'll keep some of the things off the list. No, no, no. But you're also a new dad. I am. And yeah. so, and what's what?
0: I had a daughter named Annie. She turns seven months old on uh, this upcoming Saturday.
1: Oh my gosh! Congratulations, so cute. Thank you. So life's different for you now, but you know, the question I have is really around your team and yourself. What are you doing right now to, you know, you're of course working from home, but your team is probably very used to working remotely. What are you doing to stay, to continue your work-life balance, spend time with your wife, your daughter? What are you doing to keep your morale up at, at the office, the virtual office? And how does humor play a role in that? How does improv play a role in all of that?
0: Wow. Yeah, so much so much good stuff there. So let's talk about remote work really quickly first. So this is actually a fascinating subject because it's one thing where I, as I've gained more experience and as the, as the market has kind of grown into remote being more acceptable, I have completely changed my tune. I, I've done a total 180 on remote work at RJ Metrics jake and i we came out of finance we are we were working together at a private equity firm in new york and you know whether it's private equity or investment banking or consulting or whatever in that universe there is a culture of face time like you better be at your desk at 7 p.m at night or else you have screwed something up and your manager's looking for that and you know we brought that with us to RJ Metrics. We we were very much in the office better be there better see your face kind of culture and it was only you know toward the very, very end there that we started getting a little more flexible with a remote hire here or there, experimenting with it when, you know, if we had a team member that we loved, but they really, really, for personal reasons, had to move to another city, you know, we kind of do an experimental what happens if you work remotely. And by the time we got to Stitch, we were remote friendly and we made some dedicated remote hires. At Crossbeam, my co-founder, Buck Ryan, is extremely, extremely pro-remote and can very intelligently and compassionately argue all the reasons why it is not just the way of the future, but I think the way of the present, if if you can function in the right ways. So I give Buck a virtual high five almost every day because of talking me into this extremely remote first work culture and policy at Crossbeam, because right now, in the midst of the pandemic crisis, every company is dealing with going fully remote, and some of them are ready and some of them are not
1: and some people are working remotely for the first time in, in yeah. like in 40 years
0: Yeah, right <laughs> it, it's it's remarkable so my my mom's a great example of this so so my mom who's who's still working and you know has has been an accountant bookkeeper for you know the the better part of the last 30 or 40 years did her first work from home day ever a, a couple of weeks ago and it's it's it is a transition for sure but a few of the things that uh, i'll just real quick pointers on just like What we do at Crossbeam around this stuff that I think has benefited us. One is just Zoom or whatever your teleconferencing capability is, is just like everywhere. Even when we're in the office, the requirement and the expectation in any meeting at any time is that anyone that is attending that meeting could decide to attend remotely. And that's perfectly acceptable. And there is absolutely no like downside or like, you know, uh, negative connotation to it, including if I'm sitting next to you in the office and we have a meeting even if i know you're right there i'm required to put a zoom meeting link inside of the invite and if i want to i can just not go to the conference room and just log into the zoom meeting even though we're in the same office at the same time and what that does is just goes into this bigger picture of not making remote team members second class citizens and making sure that that remote people can fully participate in in the culture in every way so you know other things that we do like we do have an office. About half of our team does like work out of the the Philadelphia headquarters here. So we have nights where we go out for happy hour. We have like you know special company events. We can't always fly everybody in for all those things. So when we can't, you know, we will we'll send care packages that are kind of like a best of of you know what we know we're going to do at the event. We'll send them out a few days in advance. If we've got a hackathon coming and the snackathon part of our hackathon involves <laughs> uh, a bunch of delicious Philly soft pretzels and uh, donuts from Federal Donuts and all kinds of other stuff. We will pack up care packages, including that stuff, and ship it out to all of our team members that'll be remote during the Hagathon so they can eat the same snacks we're eating while we're eating it in the office.
1: And it's the little things that your employees really love and appreciate and make you a valued employer. Totally. And I think you can apply
0: that. So I'll give you two examples real quick in the current environment. Two things that we did one is we have a quarterly, like, team happy hour, hangout, whatever. That's kind of our, our big quarterly event. And we obviously can't do that this quarter, but it always corresponds with our quarterly business review and our our all-hands meeting in the first month of each quarter. So we still have the QBR. We still have the all-hands meeting. So we decided that we're going to take the budget that we had for that outing. And we got in touch with a a vineyard in Napa Valley that's going to ship three bottles of wine to every one of our team members. And we're going to have a sommelier log into our Zoom immediately after the all-hands. And we're going to do a live wine tasting with each of our team members and any of the people that they're quarantined with in in their home that want to nice. participate.
1: What a great idea!
0: If we did that in the city, you'd be like, "Oh yeah, that's a nice thing." You do a wine tasting. It's kind of like you know, it's 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 a little basic, but you know, it's it's uh, it's a cool fun event. Doing it virtually almost adds like this extra layer of fun and pizzazz, and like makes it so extremely you know, it, it gives this very collective weird experience to have in this weird time for us all to share uh and we talk about building culture i think like those shared experiences end up being being really important and so, then
1: you get to see their family members and where they live yeah and you yeah, get totally. to know people it's, personally it's, it's
0: including the other folks because you know whether or not they're on camera they're standing right behind a laptop anyway right, right. <laughs> they're, they're, they're three, feet, three feet away
1: talk about improv what's uh improv in your life and how does that play a huge role in dealing with crisis but in every day and in dealing with your team
0: I'd say improv has changed a lot about how I approach conversations, good and bad that are happening internally at the company. You learn a lot of these skills in improv to like not fear the unknown and also to just listen. I, I think if improv has done one thing to make me better at being an entrepreneur, it's, it's taught me how to listen and really listen, not just to what the words are that are being said, but at what the message is that's being delivered. Because if you're on an improv stage and you're not in sync with your scene partner, they can't tell you, oh yeah, I'm going to pretend to be a a police officer in this next scene. Like, they've got to give you signals. They've got to give you cues. And sometimes it's the same in a work environment where for whatever reasons, just social personality style, political even, you might have to read between the lines sometimes. And I think... Being a really good listener, acknowledging and saying back what you heard to people when you heard it, so that you're all on the same page, is like table stakes requirement in an improv scene. But it's something that people take for granted um, in a work environment. This gets doubly important over fully remote work, also where you know all of the dimensions of communication aren't available, like being able to always look someone in the eyes or kind of you know measure up body language. So, yeah, it's been really huge for that. And I think the other thing is at Crossbeam, one of our core values is this is fun. Like, if we take ourselves really seriously, there's a lot of really serious stuff we do. But if we can't figure out how to, like, actually make this enjoyable, then I think we've screwed something up. And I think because of that, we just maintain a certain, you know, degree of levity, not taking ourselves too seriously, a willingness to, you know, approach each day from the angle of are we having, you know, the the experience that we want to have here holistically, not just from a can we all make a bunch of money standpoint. And that's, that's you know, worked its way all the way through our culture.
1: Nice. Are there any online improv classes that you're aware of that you think people should check out?
0: I guarantee there are. I'll, I'll name a couple of good organizations in Philly. The Philly Improv Theater is kind of my home theater, which is is kind of the ma- the mainstay comedy theater in Philly, particularly for long-form improv comedy. And there's another awesome theater called Good Good Comedy. They bring in awesome outside comedians. They do a lot of kind of like Uh, specialty-style shows in different formats. I've done a couple of shows over there. It's been super fun, really good kind of like offbeat style stuff. And then Comedy Sports uh, is an old tried-and-true. In fact, I know Comedy Sports has been doing shows over Zoom. I've seen a couple articles about that. So Comedy Sports with a Z at the end, they're kind of like a multi-city organization, but they have a Philly outpost, and I know they're doing some virtual stuff. So any one of those, I've I've worked with all three. Love them. Definitely, you know, if there's a way to give them some business during this time, please do, please do.
1: I love it. So in our wrap up, just to ask a couple other questions, these can be quick answers. What is one or two pieces of advice that you would give to startup founders managing their businesses right now during the pandemic? And the same question for employees at startups, trying to manage And be a part of the business, and you know, as we all know, the risk of of being a part of a startup is is big. But what's some advice that you would have? Just what are the best things that they should be thinking about right now?
0: Give you one for founders and, and one for employees. On the founder front, maybe this is like overly optimistic, and you know, for for some folks, it'll seem like maybe advice for a couple a couple steps down the road. But I do think it's worth remembering that these environments they condition you to play defense. But you can't play defense for the whole life of your company. And in fact, one of the things that comes out of these tougher environments where things are really getting crunched down on is rather than playing a full on offensive front, you can default to defense, but that doesn't mean there aren't these opportunities to make these really great, like, you know, offensive plays where you can strike in a really specific, targeted way. And whether that is a, a clever marketing campaign or using this opportunity to, like, Make sure that your team has all the right people on the right seats, you know, in in the right ways and is structured to be successful. Like this is this is a moment of change. And if there was change necessary in your company, whether it's from a product strategy or the big questions you're asking yourselves or how you have things structured around the table, now is a window in which you, you can do that. And I think a lot of the the typical pressures around, is this the right time? Should we be doing it? Or kind of off. Um, like it's time to make those big moves and it's time to play offense. And if you're an employee at, at a company like that, I'd almost ask yourself the same like vitamin versus painkiller question. Like if you, if you were gone, like, you know, what would break, what would stop working and put yourself in your founders or your manager's shoes and say, what are the things that they're saying as the answer to that question about themselves and how can you help make sure that that's, That the role you're playing for them is the role that you hope your company is playing for its customers and and making yourself indispensable. And, you know, helping be a part of that conversation, being extremely constructive, listening, and and pushing management for transparency, I think are the things that, as a team member, will probably work in in your best interest in a period like this.
1: Fantastic. Well, Bob's got to get back to work. Bob Moore has been our guest today. He's the co-founder and CEO of CrossBeam, a collaborative data platform that helps companies build more valuable partnerships by discovering which customers and leads they have in common. Thank you so much, Bob, for joining us today. This has been Ideas Elevated, the podcast of Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. If you'd like to be part of the Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs Accelerator powered by TechStars, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes and apply today. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was produced by Kevin Schmidlin with editing and mixing by Max Graham and theme music by The Last Generation on film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time.